0: All right, if you will, turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. And we're going to dive into a familiar passage. But I must confess, I'm familiar with this passage more from some of the other accounts as it's recorded in the other Gospels Matthew, Luke and John. But this one holds some beautiful little nuggets that I think are very valuable to God's church in this particular day and age. And I think, in fact, uh, very important, maybe for us, especially in the South. And I'll explain why in just a moment. But I want to start with just a little familiar quote. And feel free to finish it if you happen to know the quote as well. When, When people talk about eating certain meals and the importance of certain meals, often you may have heard, as I did, the phrase, the most important meal of the day is breakfast. Now, some of you said every meal, and that's, yes. (laughs) I would agree with you, whoever said that. Breakfast. Now, it's been one of these debated things, is breakfast really the most important meal of the day? And there are those who say, absolutely, it's the most important. Others say, well, there, there is no nutritional benefit greater with eating at that time of day than if you eat at noon or if you eat in the afternoon or, or whenever else. And so, of course not. It's, it's not the most important meal. And so, in on one sense, uh, there's nothing magical about breakfast. It's not as though if you get up and eat at a particular time between 6 and 9 a.m. Or some of you early birds, 5 and 6 a.m. Or whenever you may eat, there's nothing magical about that time. But what they have found in nutritionists and those who learn the way that our bodies work and even more importantly, how habits are built, they will uniformly say that breakfast is important insofar as it sets you up for success throughout the rest of the day. Did you know that people who eat breakfast, uh, and assuming it's a, it's a relatively healthy breakfast, those who eat breakfast tend to eat fewer calories through the rest of the day. They just don't start off so hungry, and they eat fewer calories later in the day. And, and so people who want to get in shape or lose weight, they eat breakfast. This is sort of a t- general rule and a general trend. So, there's nothing magical about the meal, but there's something about the meal that multiplies everything else. We're going to look at the most important meal, not of the day, but of your week and of your life. And before we get into this, what I want to say is the Lord's Supper, which we see inaugurated in this passage, there is nothing Magical about the bread that we take on Sundays. There's nothing magical about the juice representative of the wine Christ drank. What is important is that that meal, if understood rightly and ingested regularly, while not magical, it multiplies. The rest of your week because of its impact on the believer's life. Now, here's why I think this is so important for us as Christians, especially in the South. We are so surrounded by a christian ease culture, even if much of our culture is not Christian, because it is so familiar and because it is sort of in the fabric of what we do. I f- fear that, at least for Josh, and maybe you can identify, but for Josh, there is a temptation to because I'm so surrounded with the Christian worldview here in the South that I don't take seriously what it means to follow Jesus Christ. It's just sort of what we do, so I don't make it a personal thing. And one of the beautiful gifts that Jesus gives us is the Lord's Supper, because in this, if we will understand it rightly, and perhaps tonight, if we will understand it slightly differently, I believe it has the ability to multiply the rest not only of your week, but the rest of your life before you and I have the privilege of seeing Jesus face to face. And so I want to walk you through this passage, and there are three sections to this passage. I'm going to read through it uh, section by section, and we're going to kind of break it apart. But here's what I want you to pay attention to. The stuff on the board, that'll be the last section, and we'll get there. But I want you to see sort of the flow of the text so you understand the context as well. So it begins, Mark chapter 14, and we're rolling back a verse or two that we included on Sunday this past week, Um, but I think tonight we'll have a chance to get into it. Verse 10, then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, referring to the 12 apostles, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Verse 12, on the first day of the week, excuse me, on the first day of the feast of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparation for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples telling them, go into the city And a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters. The teacher asks, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. Make preparation for us there. Verse 16 says, The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the passover so let's just kind of take a, a moment to pause before we can understand the text here we need to understand the context for what is going on the passover and most of you if you grew up in church then you remember uh, maybe the flannel board did do you did any of you have flannel boards growing up in your church in your bible classes Uh, Some of you are going, no, we're so old, we used rocks and just sort of built the things. Okay, fine, but whatever it was. For us, it was flannel boards, but you'd have the flannel board, and on it you'd have the person with the lamb, and you'd have the doorpost with the red blood over it. And so we talk about Passover. Well, Passover began in the book of Exodus. The book name tells you what you need to know. It was the book of leaving the past and exiting or leaving into a liberated future. And the culminating event that propelled the Israelites out of captivity from Egypt was on the night that that God sent the angel of death. Now, let's just kind of remind ourselves, Israel had spent a number of years in captivity as slaves to Pharaoh. They did not choose where they went, choose what they do, choose how they do it. They were subject to whatever the ruler said that they would do. In fact, their lives were property of an evil regime to be used and expended. And so God sends a liberator named, what's his name, by the way? Moses, right? Some of you know him as Charlton Heston. So God sent Charles or Moses and he goes and he tells Pharaoh, Let my people go. Following this, because Pharaoh says, Uh uh-uh, uh, ain't no way, God sends 10 plagues, one after the other. Now, what's interesting is most of the plagues only affect the Egyptians. Not all, but most of them. But the last plague, the 10th plague, would affect both Egyptian and Hebrew. Do you remember this? God sends the angel of death and he tells the Israelites on such and such night I will send my angel and he will kill the firstborn son of every household. Not only in Egypt but in Israel. Here's what this means. The angel of death was the symbol of God's judgment, of God's righteous wrath, of God's pronouncing this is what is the consequence of wrongdoing. And notice, just because you grew up as a Hebrew, as part of God's chosen people, the fact you grew up in God's church, oops, I mean God's people, did not exempt you from the judgment of God. He said, though, the way that you may be freed from the judgment of God is if something dies and you take the blood of this lamb he says it's got to be a spotless lamb perfect lamb no blemish not broken bones nothing you take this lamb and you take the blood of the lamb put it over the doorpost and when the angel of death sees the blood that was slain on your behalf the angel will pass over in other words no one would be spared except for those who put their faith their trust In God's chosen substitutionary sacrifice. You say, what does that mean? A substitute, someone who takes your place. The substitute sacrifices. If you can trust me enough to do what I've asked you to do, put the blood over there, you say, what good will this do? You trust me and find out. And those who put their trust in it, they were saved. So this is the beginning back in Exodus. Now, in preparation for that, they were to eat a particular meal, prepared in a particular way, and it had great symbolism. We'll get to that here in a moment. But Jesus says to some of his followers, go to such and such a place, get a room ready. One quick note for you Bible geeks, if you want to notice this. He says, look for a man who's carrying a water jug. Here's why that would have been significant. You think, well, what's what's the big deal? Say it. In their day, men did not carry water. That was considered a woman's task or a servant's task. There was one group that did carry their own water. They were the Essenes. They, by the way, were the ones who uh, kept the Dead Sea Scrolls that we've heard about, perhaps. Those who uh, meticulously wrote down copies of many of our ancient scriptures, put them in jars, hid them in some... Uh, in, the, in the, these caves near the dead sea and we discovered them about 100 years ago and we go yippee the essenes were an all men's group. so who's going to carry the water the men so people aren't sure was this a uh, was this a servant of the house was this an essene w- w- we don't know but the point was jesus is giving them a picture or something to find that would have been odd in their culture that's why it was a good marker for them to follow does this make sense Which, by the way, isn't it interesting that God has made preparation if we will simply obey and go where he tells us to go? He's already made a way for us. But that's a sermon for another time. So Jesus says, prepare the space they get it ready. Now, let's read the next section. 17, when evening came, Jesus arrived with the 12. Now, we're going to see something. They're going to sit down. They're going to have a meal. And Jesus is going to suck all the air out of the room because this is a celebratory meal. Yes, liberated from Egypt. Yippee. And then Jesus says this. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, I tell you the truth. One of you will betray me. One who is eating with me now if this were an episode of murder she wrote or matlock or perry mason for some of you Columbo for others am i getting anyone's generation here at all you might you might hear you know sort of that a dun 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 at this moment this is a murder mystery moment and Jesus, in the middle of a celebration, sucks the air out of the room and says, hey, in this moment of celebration, one of you is, a, is an absolute traitor. And you just got to wonder how that must have hit them. In fact, we kind of get a sense because the very next thing that we hear, they were saddened and one by one they said to him, you almost get the picture that they kind of came over to him like, hey, 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 Jesus, Jesus, it's not me, is it? And he doesn't answer. Next one comes up, hey, Jesus, it's not me, is it? He doesn't, he doesn't answer. And here's the interesting question that I always sort of wrestle with. Wouldn't they know if they were the betrayers of Jesus? Here's the reality. I'm convinced, absolutely convinced, that they all knew their own hearts and knew that there had been moments where they had actually thought about walking away from him. Do you remember in the Gospel of John, when Jesus lays down some heavy teaching and the crowds run from him? What does he say to those close to him? Are you going to leave me as well? See, I think they all had had moments of kind of saying, is this what I really want to buy into? Is this what I want to give my life to? But they come to him, give me some assurance. It's not me, is it? It's not me. And Jesus doesn't do the sweet, meek and mild Jesus thing that we all think and hope and expect him to do. Instead, look at what he says here. It's one of the 12, he replied. One who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it's written about him, but woe to that man who betrayed the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. He says it's one of the 12, but by the way, it's the one who's dipping his bread in the bowl with me. Now, here's the problem. Part of the Passover meal, the Passover meal, we'll dig into it in a moment, but one of the pieces was that you would have bread and part of the experience is they would have a bowl of stewed fruit and you would take your bread and you would dip it into the stewed fruit and eat it. And get this, everyone at the table was dipping their bread in the stewed fruit. How many of you would have eaten that meal real comfortably from that moment on? You can almost see Thaddeus. He's like, you know, Jesus is talking and Thaddeus is reaching over. And Jesus says, it, and Thaddeus goes, nope, not me. Not me. I'm not going to be that guy. But the reality is every one of them was going to be that guy because in just a few short hours, what were they going to do at Jesus' arrest? They run away. Peter puts up a fight at first, but then when things get tough, he runs. And not only that, he buckles under the intense interrogation of a 14-year-old girl at a campfire. And says, I don't know this man. The reason Passover, the reason what Jesus is about to do, taking the old Passover and bringing it into our setting, is because, just because they grew up in Israel... Just because they grew up Hebrew boys and girls, just because they had a heritage of faith, did not mean that they could ride the heritage of faith. Every one of them had to personally put their trust, their faith, in God's chosen substitutionary sacrifice. And he is going to look at them, and in this moment, every one of them and every one of us needs what Christ is about to do on the cross. Amen? And so the Passover is going to be part of it. So then Jesus, now we get into the the meat of the lesson. He says this, while they were eating, Jesus took bread. He gave thanks and he broke it. Now, let me pause here. What we're going to do, I just want to walk you through five parts of the Passover because you're going to see how it used to be and how Jesus then changes it and brings something new, fresh, and beautiful that if we will embrace it, I think it changes everything for us. But he says as he takes the bread, he gave thanks. And he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, take it. This is my body. So the first picture, if you're someone who likes to draw on your notes, this is a great night to do that because I've got five pictures for you. The first one is bread. Now I know every one of you is going, that looks like a French baguette, <laughs> not unleavened bread. There's a reason for that. Unleavened bread would look like this and that doesn't look like anything. Okay, so we're going to go with the French baguette tonight. Just, just bear with me on this. Now, here's the way that Jesus and how the Passover worked. At Passover, there were various things that they did. They had bread. They had lamb. They had bitter herbs. And they had four glasses of wine. The presider, the head of the house, would get up. And at four different occasions in the meal, he would take a different glass of wine and he would say something. And it would begin... With him taking the first glass and the youngest child in their midst would say father or to the head of the household. What makes tonight different from all other nights? And then as they were familiar hearing, the father would then say it's because tonight is the night that God brought us his people out of bondage. There were four glasses four cups of wine each one representing one of the four promises that god gives israel in exodus chapter 6 verse 6 and 7 and these four promises these four uh, gifts if you will one was a promise that god would rescue them from egypt the second one was freedom from slavery the third was redemption by god's power meaning he would buy us back and number four that we could have the promised, renewed relationship with him. So as they took these four glasses or cups of wine, they were reminded of these four promises. And during the third cup, near the end of the meal, the father or the head of the house would take the third cup and he would, with that cup, begin to describe the symbolism behind the bread, the herbs, the lamb, and the wine, and he would speak using Deuteronomy chapter twenty-six. And when he would speak of the bread, he said this. This was the phrase that was used. He would say, "This is the bread." And listen to this language of our affliction, which our fathers ate in the wilderness. In other words, in the first Passover, in the one that they were familiar with, that it was all about our affliction they were remembering what they went through but notice what jesus does in this moment he doesn't say this is the bread of our affliction instead you notice the words because listen if you're a disciple you've heard those words this is the bread of our affliction which our fathers ate in the wilderness you've heard that every year for the years that you've been growing up every year So you know when he takes the bread and is about to pass it out and he's about to utter these words, you know the words to expect, but listen to the words Jesus actually uses. He says, take it. This is my body. He doesn't say this is our affliction. He is saying this is my body. As commentaries point out, he is saying, oh, you thought you were afflicted. Understand that my body is about to be broken. This is my affliction. You take it, you eat it, but it is my affliction that all of this has been pointing to. And so Jesus, with the bread, he says, no, 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 it's not our, it's, well, it's my affliction. My body. My body. That will be broken in just a few moments. Now, you've got to imagine if you were one of these young men going, what did he just say? This makes no sense. But wait, there's more. Jesus then continues. Next, we see that he takes the cup. Verse 23, then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them. And they all drank from it. He says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And he said to them, I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. Now, here's what is so interesting, that last phrase where he says, I tell you the truth, I won't drink the fruit of the vine until such and such day, until this moment. Now, people who know uh, the Hebrew language and the idioms, the phrases, the sayings, they will tell you that this phrase Jesus uses is actually a Hebraic or Hebrew type vow. He is making an oath. This was a way of making a big deal. It was, uh, I'm not going to eat or drink until this thing happens. I'm not going to eat or drink until I do this. In fact, in the book of Acts, we remember this actually happens. Some people get angry at Paul. They say, we want to get rid of this fool. Not, they didn't say fool, but that's the idea. They said, we want to get rid of him. And so what do they say? They made a vow that they would neither eat nor drink until Paul was dead. And they are still hungry to this day because they didn't do it. If you're curious where that's found, that's Acts chapter 23. It was a way of making a vow or a covenant. In fact, that's the word Jesus uses here. He is making a vow. He's saying, listen, guys, what I'm about to do, I am promising to you in the strongest terms possible that I will fulfill what I'm promising to do for you. I will not eat, I won't drink, I won't do anything else until I eat and drink with you in the kingdom of God. He is making a declaration. He is making a covenant. Now, we've talked about this before. What is a covenant? A covenant was the most sacred, the most serious vow one could make. There was a process for covenant making. Hang on with me. This will make sense, I hope. If you and I, let's just say, Charlie, we are going to make covenant one with another. You know, I'm going to promise to do things. You're going to promise to do things. What we would do is we would take an animal and we would cut the animal down the middle from nose down, lay the two parts on the side. This is a bloody ritual. They would often put the animal on top of an indented rock so that the blood would pool in the middle and then both parties would walk through the blood, splashing it, getting it on their robes. And it was their way of saying, may what we have done to this animal be done to me if I don't fulfill what I've promised to do for you. This was a serious promise, wasn't it? And what does Jesus say? He says, I'm making a vow to you. I won't eat or drink until... I have accomplished what I am promising to accomplish. And here's the thing. Every covenant needed blood. We've just described it. Notice what Jesus says here, though. This, verse 24, This is my blood. Of what? Of the covenant. He's saying, you need a sacrifice to make a covenant. Guess what? This is the sacrifice for the covenant I'm going to make to you. That I am so seriously committed to you that I will not hedge my bets. I won't say, well, I'll do it maybe or I'll do it probably. But he is, un- listen to me, family, he is unconditionally committed to you. He said, this is my blood. This is all I've got. This is the symbol. It used to represent one thing. But now, but now, it was this, well, the cup was the four promises, wasn't it? They would drink these cups, and it was a way of saying, God promises, God promises, God promises, God promises. But in Jesus' Passover, it's Jesus saying, I fulfill. Or you might want to put the words, promise kept. This is what it symbolizes, that he says, I'm going to keep my promise to you. By the way, do you understand every promise in Scripture that applies to his church, he will keep those promises to you. You never have to doubt it. He's made covenants with you. We go on. Now, after this, we come to the third piece. And this one's kind of an interesting one. The centerpiece of the Passover meal was the meh, right? The the sheep, right? Lamb chop, whatever. Now, in the original Passover, there was a very specific way that you would prepare the lamb. You had to eat all of it. You could not leave any of it. If you did, you had to discard the remains in a particular way. It was a very specific, sacred piece of the meal. In fact, this was the centerpiece of the meal. Josephus, early historian, historian uh, who lived in the first century, he said around AD 60, this is 30 years after the date that we're talking, but AD 60, that there were somewhere in the neighborhood of 250,000 sheep slaughtered for Passover. There were a ton of sheep being slaughtered. In fact, We won't get into this Sunday, so I'll share this with you now. When Jesus leaves this meal and goes east out of the city up to the Mount of Olives, he first goes down into the Kidron Valley, and he crosses over what used to be a small little babbling brook called the Brook Kidron. And according to other historians, because of the amount of blood that was flowing from these lambs, they had a system where it would dump the blood out down into the brook, and the brook literally would be running red with the blood of the lamb. Jesus, as he is leaving the city, going to the Mount of Olives, would have stepped over the blood of the lamb to go. The lamb, it's a centerpiece of what's going on. Now, here's what's interesting. Look back through the text. Where is the lamb to be eaten in this text? Do you see mention of a lamb in this text? By the way, if you go to Matthew, you won't see a lamb. If you go to Luke's account, no lamb. If you go to John's account of the Passover, there is no lamb mentioned. The gospel writers were intentional to omit the centerpiece of Passover. Because this was the first Passover where the lamb was not on the table, family. The lamb was at the table. The lamb was presiding over the table. Do you remember what John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus for the first time? In John chapter 1, he says about Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the lamb. You don't need a lamb on the table because the one who will end the sacrificial system forever, God's perfect sacrifice, his substitute for you and for me, for all of us who've dunked our bread in the bowl, he says he doesn't get on the table yet. He's presiding over it. He will be going to the table on the cross very soon, though. So it used to mean, if you want to write this down, that lamb was on the table. But with Jesus' Passover, and you need to understand this, when we gather on Sunday, we're told that we're two or more are gathered in Jesus' name. How does that go? He is with us, isn't he? On Sunday, when we break bread together, when we take the fruit of the vine, do you understand that Jesus Christ himself is in our midst? He is not on the table. He is at the table. You know, often we talk about people who are leading the Lord's Supper or presiding over the Lord's Supper. And listen, I'm so grateful for all of you men who do that each week. But let's just be clear. I don't preside. You don't preside. Jesus himself is the one who presides over our Lord's Supper. We simply get to facilitate the moment. He is at the table. The Lamb of God. Isaiah, talking about this, says that Jesus was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And then he says that he was poured out this is Isaiah chapter 53:12 that Jesus or that the lamb would be poured out, his life poured out unto death. Interesting that then Mark, recording Jesus' words, Jesus says in verse 24. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for you. He's quoting Isaiah, but not of a lamb, not of anything other than for himself. This is that moment. Now, what's this other emblem for? Now, I I apologize. It's not a great picture. This is an hourglass. How many of you have seen or played with an hourglass? Um, No joke's going to be mentioned at this point. We're just going to kind of move on. Someone said, you should have used a sundial. Well, we'll we'll just kind of go with this. But this is representative of when the Passover was taken. Let's step back to Egypt. The people of Israel are told to make this particular meal of wine and lamb bitter herbs representing the bitterness of their enslavement and they were to do so in a particular way and at a particular night what was so significant this was the night in ancient egypt this was the night before god would bring down the sword of justice and as a result his people who hear this now put their faith in the blood of the lamb would be liberated, would be set free from bondage. This was the night before. This would be the night before, if you want to write this down. Liberation from Egypt. But now Jesus does the same thing, but it's not liberation from Egypt, but rather Jesus does this the night before we would all be liberated from sin. So he's now saying, Look, you thought it was bad living in Egypt where your lives were not your own, you were enslaved, you were commanded to work, to live, and when you could not produce, you died. That was the life God liberated you. This took place the night before, but oh, now, 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 God is liberating you not from a physical taskmaster, but from one far worse who will crush you for eternity. And this is the night before. And then finally, the last thing that I want you to notice is who's around the table. So we have the emblems. You have the bread, the wine, the lamb, the time, but the people around the table. Now, here's what's interesting. Passover was one of those high holy days That was celebrated uh, With great fervor Uh, uh, Quick question by the way What are Some of the big holidays for us Americans? What do you got? Christmas Yeah, okay What's another one? Thanksgiving, okay, Christmas, Thanksgiving Quick question, you may have a lot Of people in your home for Christmas or Thanksgiving But who are those that you must have in your home for one of those kind of holidays? Family. This was one of their, it's got to be family holidays. In fact, it was expected that if your family was living, you would celebrate Passover with your biological family. Now, here's what's interesting. Jesus takes his followers, his disciples, away from their biological families. They don't get to celebrate Passover with mom, dad, sister, brother. Instead, he takes them and he circles them around his table because while the first Passover was about biological family, Jesus changes it and he creates a new family. This is the great news about the gospel, that it doesn't matter where you came from, doesn't matter what you've done, high, low socioeconomic background, high, low education, rich, poor, smart, dumb, good-looking, not-so-good-looking, tall, short, whatever it may be. He says, it's not about your family of origin. I am making a new family, and the only requirement is that you have put your trust in God's substitutionary sacrifice, Jesus Christ, and you get to be a part of His family of God. Isn't that great news? We are a fa- By the way, this is our family. Just a little piece of it. This is family. You're my family. I got to be your family. You got to be family with one another. Some of you are going, yay. Some of you are going, no. But you're family. <laughs> this is a gift from God. And in this moment, he is taking what was, and he is changing it to be something so, so beautiful. Now, real quick, we've got a few minutes left. Let me just kind of pull it to a close. Here's the big question that I think, as we look at this, that just kind of hits me. Is of all the images that Jesus could use, of all the images that God could have chosen to convey what he would do with a sacrificial substitute, why did he choose of all things food food and drink. Right? You got bread? You got wine? Why that? Here here's what I think's going on here. Let's talk for a moment, just just the simple biology. We need food and water to live, don't we? Now again, there's different amounts that we need and You know, we need water more than we need food. But at the end of the day, you cannot go indefinitely without food and water. Correct? Let's think about just for a moment. What is the process of getting the food to be beneficial to us? Because we know certain things have nutrients. and, And there's something innate in that object that we need in us. Correct? Well, there's a process if we want to go with something like meat, for you to be able to ingest the nutrients of that chicken or that cow or that pig or whatever it is, step number one, that animal must die, correct? For you to live must die. Meaning, because we are in a world of decay, something has to die for others to live this is the result of sin let's continue the metaphor let's just kind of think through this so first for us to receive in ourselves the nutrients what we need something has to die or even you say well you know josh what about people who don't eat meat fine let's just talk about plants for a moment understand they don't have life in the way we do um, But people will say they they have some sort of biological process, photosynthesis. They produce, they grow, they still die. Uh, What about uh, bread, right? You've got the kernel. It has to fall. It is coming off of a living organism. Death. So there is death for you and I to have life. Number two, how many of us understand that It's not enough. We cannot be filled with something simply by looking at it outside of ourselves. We have to receive it deep inside. Meaning, to receive the benefit of Jesus Christ, we can't simply just sort of look at him. Let me tell you one of the the best worst things you can ever do when you're hungry is go to the grocery store after they've just made bread Or maybe you go to a Sam's Club, and they have those rotisserie chickens that are... Have you seen these things? Look, if you want to torture yourself, here's what you do. You just kind of park yourself in front of it, and you just... mm. Or, or, Or what about this? Just go to the bakery section as they are taking the cake out, and they're putting the icing on, and you can... I mean, you can literally smell the calories as they're being put on the cake. (laughs) But here's the deal. There is no benefit to you. It will not sate your hunger simply smelling it, looking at it, admiring it. How many people do you know who go to church every Sunday and they admire Jesus? They look at Jesus. They smell and go, he smells good. And they might even talk about how he would taste really, really, really good. But they never get around to bringing him into the deepest part of their life so that he can actually change their life. God uses this picture because he knows that for you and I to be changed, it's not enough simply to know Jesus. It's not even enough just to go over and pat Jesus. You ever pat a chicken? I'm telling you what, it's gross. It won't fill you up. You've got to take that and put it inside. It's not enough to be close to Jesus. You must have him inside of you. This is one of the reasons that the gift of the Holy Spirit is such a gift that God comes into you, filling you, living in you, changing you. His infinite power empowering you to do what you cannot and I cannot do on our own strength. Have you ever tried to go and work in the yard after not eating for two or three or four or five days? You've got nothing to work with. The reason he gives us this picture is because he's saying you cannot simply watch Jesus, you have to ingest him. And here's the last thing. You notice that with this image, I think it's one of the most beautiful pictures because unlike an animal that doesn't have the choice to sacrifice itself, Christ says, I will gladly lay myself on the altar for your life. There's a story that came out in National Geographics many years ago. It was recounting one of those forest fires. This one was in Yellowstone National Park, and it was a devastating fire. At the conclusion of it, some of the park rangers were going through, surveying the damage, and one ranger made his way around to this one spot, and there's this big old tree that's just charred, just absolutely destroyed. And he looked down, and at the base of the tree was this carbonized, flash-baked husk of a bird. And it's kind of just a grotesque picture. He's like, oh. And he kind of moved closer, and, and, and not really sure what, what came over him, why he chose to do this, but he, he, he sort of tapped it with his foot. And as soon as he did, three little chicks ran out from underneath the dead mom. I want to say something in here true love the love that changes lives will always be a substitutionary sacrificial love here's what i mean by this how many of you know let me give you an example how many of you have seen a cool kid in school befriend the nerd in school and the other cool kids begin to push the former cool kid away To show love to the one who is outside, some of that person's nerdiness is rubbing off. They are receiving on themselves. The cool kid is receiving on himself. This other person. Here's the reality. The reason that Jesus' sacrifice was so great is he sacrificed, he substituted himself. The reason this little mother bird stayed put, she said, I will die so that they live as the heat came on as she did not move because the life of those under her. And Jesus Christ is the sacrifice who doesn't crawl off the altar. He's the one who crawled on the altar. Hear me now. The nails did not hold Jesus to the cross. His love for you did. And it's the communion that we get to celebrate. That every promise, every promise of God is fulfilled in Christ with the cup. That it is his body, not ours, that is broken. That he fulfilled the covenant. That we remember it every week so we never forget that we've been liberated from death. And we get to do it around the table with our new family. And at the head of the table is our big brother and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is what we celebrate every week. And this is what Jesus brought us. Let's pray together. Merciful God, thank you for the gift... Of Jesus. When the sword began to fall on our lives, you gave us the substitutionary sacrifice that if we would simply trust in him, have faith in him, we would be saved. I thank you, Jesus, for saving us. I thank you for Casting this beautiful meal in fresh light so that each week as we gather and we receive the emblems, we would not forget what they symbolize. There's nothing magic about them. But they multiply and magnify our view of who you are as we live in the moment and ingest those things which remind us of you. We love you, Jesus. May we this week live with you as you live in us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.